Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. For maybe the first time in the Drive Nation Podcast, we're getting technical um, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to Andrew and me, but we'll give it a go anyway. I'm not talking about car mechanics getting your fingers oily underneath the bonnet of a car. We're talking more about the engineering side. Um, having said that, neither of us are engineers. Um, Andrew, there are writers in this industry who are super hot on engineering matters. Um, I'm not one of them. Where do you sort of position yourself on that? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the sort of bloke who looks at his television and, uh, and sort of doesn't need to know how it works, just to be very grateful yes. for, 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 for the fact that it does. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got mates. Um, there's a bloke called John Sinister, who many people listening to this would have read his words over the years. Um, and he just doesn't understand why I find it difficult. And we'll be <laughs> sharing a car and he will be talking about, I don't know, some differential that he's just rebuilt and he'll be talking about sun gear and planet wheels and all this stuff and and looking at me as if you know how could I possibly do my job if I didn't know all this stuff um and and I, I'm in awe of these characters um and, and I wish that I could I mean but to be honest with you um I, I what could I do um I can change brake pads I can change oil I can choose spark plugs um that's about it I'm afraid um which is which is rather pathetic um but I, I, I guess I, what I'm kind of hoping we're going to be talking about is not um, so much uh, how things work, but what effect those things have on the cars that we drive. Because if it is um, about how things work, then you're going to need to find somebody else to do this podcast for you because I haven't <laughs> got a clue. Yeah, well, you and me both. I'm I'm not particularly hot on uh, the, the mechanics or um, the specifics, the details of car engineering, but... I think anyone who writes about cars the way you and I do have a, a sort of duty, don't we, to at least make an effort to understand the fundamentals, the basics. We, we don't have to be able to tell anyone how to repair a broken whatever, but I think we do need to 
understand why a car does or doesn't, for instance, have a limited slit differential. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's very important. You know, you and I joke about how limited our engineering knowledge is, and, and it really is. But I, I hope what we are, well, without, you know, without wishing to sound boastful, I hope what we're quite good at is, although we don't know how this stuff works, uh, we do know absolutely the effect it has on the cars that yeah. we drive. Um, and if you couldn't do that, you couldn't do this job, or you certainly couldn't do it very well. So I mean, hopefully that's what we're going to be able to shed some light on. And, and also, I hope when people are about to sort of tick expensive boxes on options list, maybe inform them a little bit as to whether it's a it's it, it's a good idea or not because i mean there is an awful lot of stuff um which depending on the sort of car you're going to buy and particularly the sort of way you're going to use it um you, know, you can end up spending you know a lot of money on a lot of kit that you just don't need now you might want to have it anyway because you think it's cool and that's fine but um if we can you know provide a little bit of uh insight into what these things do and whether you need them or not i think that that, that might actually be us providing some kind of little public service there <laughs> yeah, we'll give it a go. We'll come on to that stuff a bit later on. I suspect, like me, Andrew, you, um, almost as a bare minimum, you tried to educate yourself on vehicle dynamics, the sort of fundaments of how um, a car gets down a road or around a corner. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, you'll have read Mark Donoghue's book, The Unfair Advantage. And Indeed. I suspect learned a huge amount just from that book alone. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, if, if, if nobody's read it, um, it's basically it's his um, Mark Donahue, amazing racing driver, American. Um, very sadly, died in 1975 uh, in a crash in a Formula One race, the Austrian Grand Prix, in fact. Um, but before that, he was just a complete legend in Can-Am cars and Indy cars and Trans-Am cars and all. He basically raced everything. Um, but and his autobiography sort of took the the form of basically being technical descriptions of how the cars he drove drove um and it's absolutely fascinating and particularly the things that they used to do to those cars to develop them and the tests they used to go through um i mean for instance they used to just drive a car around a circle you know a constant radius corner round and round and round um with equipment on it which would just show the, the amount of lateral g that it could generate and back then you know, if you did something to, you, you had a new tyre or you did something to, to the suspension, you wanted to find out whether it had more grip or not, that's what you did. And um, and in the road car um, arena, yeah, we have to have, you know, a good understanding of why a car is doing what it is doing um, relative to other cars, which perhaps have, you know, alternative systems on them. So it's, it, it is actually all really important stuff um and i i I quite enjoy that and i I think the other thing that i have found i mean one of the things uh, i get to do these days because i'm so bloody old is um i get to sort of for want of a better phrase mentor uh the young auto car road testers and they come and um you know and not just their road testers but also you know anybody on the magazine who uh, needs to go and write first drives and they come down to me and we go out and spend some time on the roads and you know and i explain things like Things that are really, really, I find quite easy to understand, but quite difficult to explain. Things like steering feel and the difference between primary and secondary ride and all that sort of um, stuff, which, you know, sounds quite sort of, I don't know, sounds technical or not, but it is really important um, to a person's ability to understand a car and, uh, and, and, and what it does. 
Yeah, without it, you're you're trying to review a car almost blind, aren't you? It's, it's it's kind of hopeless if you don't understand the basics of vehicle dynamics. I mean, the very very basics of vehicle dynamics. You're a little bit stuffed, really. Um, yeah, I mean, and, you, you you have to have the basic equipment, don't you? I mean, you know, a, a plumber without his or her spanners isn't going to you know mend many washing machines, and it's the same thing. There is just a sort of a slightly technical language, and even if you don't use it in what you write, um, you do have to have it to be able to understand what a car is saying to you when you drive it and if you can't do that you can't do the job it is that simple okay so let's get stuck into it then i think we should start we should start with limited slip differentials um mm. and <laughs> it's funny isn't it this is either going to be interesting to people or deathly boring i'm sure we'll get some feedback and work out which one it is um fundamentally though <clears throat> a limited slip differential well, let's go. Let's go right back to the to the to the beginning. You you can't bind, or you shouldn't really bind the wheels on an axle on either side together on a solid axle um, because it, it, when you travel around a corner, the wheel on the inside will travel less distance than the wheel on the outside, and that wheel on the inside will will the tire will grab and it will um, sort of scuff along the road and it's uncomfortable and you'll wear the tire and it's just not very clever. So you need some sort of differential to allow that differential in speed. Um, and that's normally an open differential. Most cars have an open differential, which is fine. That solves that basic problem. However, with an open differential, the torque <clears throat> will always go, will always follow the path of least resistance. And that means that if one wheel is unloaded because of weight transfer or it's on a less grippy surface, that wheel will spin up and all the torque will go to that wheel and it will, it will spin even more. That's when you get that one tire fire. Um, and, <laughs> and that's, it's a good phrase, isn't it? Yeah, and it that, is. It's excellent. And that's no, that's no good at all. Um, because if, if you lose traction on one tire, it's the whole axle has lost traction. Um, and if you're, the, the extreme sort of scenario is if you're parked on the, say, a muddy verge and you've got one wheel on dry tarmac, other on very wet mud, you, the car won't get going because that tire on the very wet mud will just spin and spin. So to to get over that, you need a limited slip differential, some sort. There are various types. Um, fundamentally, they stop the torque from following that path of least resistance and going just to one side. Um, they sort of divide the torque uh, so that even if one tire is on a very very low grip surface, you'll still get drive from that axle. And then when you talk about a performance car, there are many, many other benefits, things like a much better drive away from a corner with less wastage. In a front-wheel drive car, you can actually put your foot down much earlier than you think is necessary or sensible, and the the differential, the LSD, will bite and just drag the car away from the corner in this sort of most remarkable way that just helps you get away from a bend with with real speed. Actually, there's an interesting little stats here, Quaif, and they make limited slip differentials, they reckon that in a front-wheel drive car, um, on a damp day around Alton Park, the difference in lap time is three seconds having an LSD compared to not having one, which gives some indication of how effective an LSD can be um, on circuit. Three seconds is a huge amount, isn't it? Huge amount. Huge amount, and, and you know, I actually, particularly for a front wheel. I mean, obviously, it depends on other factors like which particular car it is and power and that sort of thing. But um, I can actually believe that for a front wheel drive car around a wet circuit, like oh, definitely. Yeah, I remember I've spoken about it on this podcast before. Driving 
that Vauxhall Corsa VXR club sport up the hill climb, Gersten Down. And it, it, it had a, what was it, a Drexler LSD. And it, it worked so effectively. I could just stand on the power almost the moment the car was turned in. And without it, that would have just caused the car to power understeer into a barrier somewhere. But with, with the diff, it would just drag the car up the hill. And it it was remarkable. I think, you know, getting rid of that differential probably would have been equivalent to getting rid of 50 horsepower or something. It made all the difference in the world. Um, there are a couple of, well, there, are, there are various types of LSD, but sort of primarily you've got geared types, automatic torque biasing, ATB diffs, um, and they're sort of fit and forget. There's no wearing parts. And you've also got plate diffs with clutch packs. Um, and they're sort of more extreme. They're motorsport style, um, take more maintenance. Uh, and there are sort of others as well, electronically controlled discs, which we'll, we'll get onto. Disadvantages of a differential. And th- this is one of the reasons that I want to bring up this topic, because there are manufacturers that insist that you just don't need them, um, particularly with modern ESC technologies, you just don't need them. And there, there, are, there are drawbacks. There's extra weight um, in a front-wheel drive, uh, sorry, a rear-drive car in particular. You can get more understeer on turn-in with the diff sort of effective, effectively pushing the car forward. Um, there's also a school of thought that says, actually, it's safer to not have one because if you stand on the power in a very clumsy way in a rear-drive car and there's no... Uh, locking diff and one tire spins up that's actually safer than both spinning up because you won't necessarily get a big um, oversteer moment that's how one of the alpine engineers explained to me why they went without which i thought was quite interesting have you heard that before um uh, yeah i have um to me um the ideal is to not have a limited slip differential for for the reasons that you explain they do make cars understeer um and they do add weight to the car but of course there comes a stage where the car has so much torque to transmit that you need some kind of device to enable the car to do that now a car like the a110 i would absolutely defend it not having a differential for for two reasons one is it's not that powerful and secondly it's mid-engine so it has a lot of inherent traction um, and so what you could do is you could go and fit a an lsd into an a110 and on a very very small number of occasions you know find that it does give you a little bit of additional traction but what you're doing is you're adding weight at the end of the car you don't want to add weight to you're making the car um, understeer on uh, on entry which you don't want it to do and 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 you know better than anybody because you've got one <laughs> that lovely balance that car has um and you're going to affect that um and so why would you if you didn't need to now lotus um have taken have always taken almost always taken exactly the same view and they've always had their cars with open differentials and they say that if you have proper uh, rear suspension geometry you've got a mid-engine car unless you're dealing with ridiculously powerful cars you get a better for want of a better road purer um, handling car with um, just having an open differential um, now you know road testers don't like cars with open differentials largely because um, it's, it's you know those big skid shots you know beloved um, they're, they're impossible to do I mean you can you know, you, you you can get the tail out on using weight transference, but you can't keep it there because the moment 
a car is oversteering with an open differential and you put your foot on the gas, it just spins it all away. Um, you need a limited slip differential to enable you to maintain the drift. Um, and if you can't do that, then, you know, you ain't going to be drifting. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that um, people who do what we do for a living is always sort of, or can always, uh, there, there are certain people who will actually sort of sneer at cars like um, McLaren's, um, who also take a very purist view over these sort of things and, and to date at least have not fitted uh, a proper mechanical limited slip differential into the cars because they can't do big drifts in them. Um, and, you know, pff, fine. You know, I understand that's their point of view. It's, you know, it's fun. But um, the McLaren case is interesting uh, because those are obviously, I can't think of another car with anything like that amount of power which doesn't have a mechanically locking differential in it. Um, but generally speaking, I would say an LSD is a device for fixing a problem. And if you ain't got that problem, you don't need that device. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice pithy way of sort of summarising it, isn't it? So you presumably think that <clears throat> McLarens get away without having some sort of locker? <laughs> to be honest with you, no. I, th- I, would, I, I understand why they've gone down that road. Uh, and they do do clever things with the way they, ele- they electronically control it. I mean, obviously, you know, what you were talking about, about um you know a car which loses traction on one side and therefore not being able to move obviously what you can do in the modern world is have an electronic brain look at that and think "Mm, that's not very good we'll divert some torque to the other wheel and then off you go so um or or what you'll do is you'll break that wheel which is spinning um until eventually the torque finds its way to the other one and off you go so you can mimic to an extent the effect in certain situations of a limited slip differential without having one and mclaren has so far chosen to do that um that at times um when mclaren start to oversteer um they can be i mean so i mean certainly the 765 lt got some stick for this uh, i mean it's not something that i experienced myself but i know that you did um when it, it gets a bit spiky when um when the power is reapplied and you don't get that very sort of progressive drift that you do if the car had a limited slip differential so it's a long answer to a short question isn't it but um yeah i mean i i think um that with cars like that um fundamentally they should have limited slip differentials in them um and being a bit of a purist i don't really like the idea but in reality i think those cars would be better off even than they are better even than they are if if they'd had one fitted yeah there's a sort of ongoing conversation to be had about it isn't there and i suppose mclaren would say that that's all well and good but it comes at a cost and the extra weight um the extra understeer would actually make it not an improvement um which is perhaps fair enough but there are electronically controlled exactly. slip differentials. And we're not talking e-diffs. We've mentioned those where you use the brakes to mimic the effect. These actually are, they're mechanical limited slip differentials, but they have electronic control so that the computer, the brain, can decide when it's open and when it's closed, when it's locked. Um, and so that's how you get around that entry understeer issue. Um, and you also have that very progressive um, type of breakaway under power that we all love i mean ferraris have them so you've you've done this i know you have you drive a modern ferrari say a 488 pista um it's got one of these very clever electronically controlled but manical mechanical limited differentials and it's such a controllable car at the limit isn't it it's it's 
it, it's actually incredible. I remember driving it thinking, this is a 700 plus horsepower mid-engine Ferrari and it's as controllable at the limit as an M2 or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is extraordinary. Um, and I, I think we should say at this stage with um, limited slip diffs, if people don't know, um, with a limited slip diff, you can choose the amount of slip that is limited. Um, they have sort of lock-up ratios. Um, the thing with uh, with an e-diff is that, in theory at least, it can go from being fully open to completely locked. So effectively, you have... Um, you know, if, it, if, it, if it's fully locked, you know, an equal amount of torque goes to um, goes to both wheels. So it, it, it is, you know, on paper at least, the perfect solution. Um, the reason that I suspect that McLaren um, has resisted it till now is that, you know, an e-diff is heavier than um, a, a, a limited slip diff and a limited slip diff is heavier than an open diff. And, you know, McLaren being fairly weight obsessed, I don't think they have much liked the idea of adding that amount of mass to, um, to, to that end of the car. But it will be interesting to see, um, I think as many people know, McLaren have got their sort of you know, their new second generation car starting um, life in the spring. It's a replacement for the, the sports series, the 570S and, and so on and so forth. And you know, that's their kind of clean sheet design. And I will be very interested. I mean, I, I read in Autocar um, today that it's going to have, you know, as a get, at the get-go, over 600 horsepower. And that's going to be their sort of standard base offering um, with a huge amount of electric um, hybrid torque as well. And I, I would just be interested to see whether they have continued to stick to their guns and keep that with an open diff or whether they've actually got to the stage where they think, you know, do you know what? We've got so much torque to transmit. Um, you know, actually having an open diff is causing more problems than it solves. Um, and then I presume they go to um, to an e-diff. But uh, we will see. It'll be interesting. Mm. Okay, one last word then on LSDs. Yeah. Um, a, a, a really good candidate for an aftermarket LSD is a BMW M135i or M140i. So I'm talking the previous generation. It, the, sounds, the rear to like have, it sounds to me like you have some knowledge in this area. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, so the, the previous car, the rear drive car with the, that lovely six-cylinder turbo engine, that's a really good candidate because BMW, uh, I think you could get one through its sort of its in-house aftermarket catalogue, couldn't you? Um, but they, they certainly, most cars did not come with LSDs. They had no, open because, because they wanted to keep them for the M2 and that sort of thing, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and so there are companies that will that will offer them for sale. Quaif make them and you can get them through companies like Bird's. Um, and I, I had an M135i for a little while, and we, we fitted one. Um, we gave the car a load more power, and we fitted a diff. We have spoken about it before on this podcast. Um, and what I found was just much more, well, more traction, um, less sort of stability control interference in, in at the corner exits, but also more predictable power oversteer, you know, that, that sort of more clinical, more progressive breakaway from the rear end under power it actually it just made the car way more fun to drive um and that's and, it, it's, and it, it, it didn't uh, it didn't spoil the balance it didn't make it push too much i, d- I never never drove it thinking oh it feels a bit pushy now no so no, it's interesting. i thought i thought it was a really really good upgrade Part, partly because that's a it's a front engine car um okay it's a bmw they say it's 50 50 weight distribution but even so the engine's at the front um, driven wheels at the back it got plenty of torque um, I think it's just a really strong candidate for uh, an LSD upgrade isn't it um, 
Right, let's let's move on to something completely different then. Just before you do, can I can I just do, do yeah. one last word on LSDs? Um, I have been lucky enough to drive a few Group C cars, sort of you know sports cars, you know the more cars from the nineteen eighties, um, and their solution to the traction issue was not to have a diff. They have a thing called a sp- they, they have a thing called a spool diff, which effectively means the axle is locked. Um, which means if you're sort of pushing them around the paddock and trying to negotiate them, I mean, they're absolute nightmares and they clank and they slip and they skid and they do everything else. But the, you know, if you don't have a diff, um, the traction that you get, you just realise just how much you're losing when you do. Um, so I just thought I'd lob that in there because well, I can. <laughs> yeah, you can. And yeah. drifters do it as well, don't they? They just weld yeah, their diffs exactly. up and it's basically the same thing. Um, okay, let's talk about carbon ceramic brakes. Ooh. And this this is a good one to get into because if you want to specify carbon ceramic brakes on your new Porsche or whatever, Aston Martin, whatever it is, you're spending five grand, maybe ten grand. Yeah, it's, it's such Yeah, it's such a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. Can we Let's think back to the early days of them. Um, I, I think the Porsche GT2 was, if not the first production road car to have them, um, one of them at least, one of the first. Uh, what, what do you remember of the brakes on that car? Um, I mean, they, they, they did a good job of stopping the car, um, but um, they were a bit fraught. I mean, my, my fear for them was that they wouldn't work outside a certain temperature window and that you'd get in the car on the first thing in the morning on a cold day and you wouldn't have any brakes. Now, clearly, Porsche weren't going to put a car like that into production. So they did, they did work well enough. They just didn't feel right. Um, and, you know, I'm one of these guys who... Um, I always think a car has a really good brake system if you can drive from one place to another and never think about it. If your brakes are giving you cause for thought, it's almost always because they're not behaving the way that you want them to. Maybe the pedal feel is rubbish, maybe they're starting to fade, maybe the pedal progression is rubbish, whatever. Um, And the problem with those early carbon ceramic brakes is you just didn't get the pedal feel that you got with iron discs and it you know i would say that even now even now and there aren't that many cars you can drive these days where you can sort of chop from one to the other but you know the 911 is absolutely one um, i would say that if you want you know if you're not going to be skidding around tracks or whatever if you just want the car with the best brake feel definitely still go for save yourself the money and still go for for iron discs yeah i i five years ago at evo magazine i did a a test a a direct back-to-back comparison of um the the upgraded carbon ceramic brakes which i can't remember the cost of them on that car but must have been six or seven grand six or seven grand i know i mean but but they do last forever don't they i mean they do you you do so you you know you're not going to you probably won't replace them but yeah sorry good do go on (laughs) and so we we used identical jaguar f-type r's the v8 ones they were otherwise identical, but one car had the, the, the standard iron brakes, the other car had the upgraded carbon ceramics. Um, and we had to devise a test to try and tease out actually what the, what the, what the manifest difference was between those two braking systems. Um, and we worked out that we actually had to make it a really extreme test, otherwise we wouldn't really be able to demonstrate any difference at all. And so what we did was, uh, in each car we did 20 consecutive emergency stops from 100 miles an hour with wow. only as long as it took to accelerate back up to 100 miles an hour um, that, that time to let them cool down again. So it was a, a really quite brutal test, actually. I remember saying to Jaguar, 
we're going to do this test and it, you know it's going to be over many pages you'll get great coverage but we need to do it on the understanding that we might destroy um a set of brakes and i bet they, you did well we gave it a good go um and they they didn't look good afterwards the particularly the iron ones you know when the 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 pad sort of smears around the yeah, around yeah. the disc and it, it looks horrible and it's yeah it doesn't feel quite right after that either um i remember the which was handy for the photos I remember the, the discs the, the iron discs grow glowing bright red um i remember the pads were on fire at one point and just having to disappear for a lap around the circuit just to try and get some air running over the brakes just to try and cool them down a little bit i, I actually I hated doing it actually because it just felt like torture to the car um but you know it was in the name of science so there we go i i, I could justify it to myself so we we did that 20 conserv 20 consecutive emergency stops from 100 miles an hour um and the the results i think were quite interesting the the carbon ceramic brakes didn't fade in the sense that the braking distance almost didn't increase at all from you know the the first run to the 20th run whereas the the iron brakes the the first run the car stopped in 87 meters and the last one, it stopped in 112 metres. Oh. Um, so quite a big increase there. That demonstrated what the, what the difference is between those two braking systems. Um, so, you know, we, I think we proved that they work as advertised. Um, yeah, you know, but, that, but, that's but, no, but nobody's ever going to do that in the real world, are they? That's the thing. That is the thing. And if it, 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 you would never even do that on the circuit. Exactly. Torture, torture brakes like that. You would never do that. Um, and there are, you know, there are other factors as well that we have to address now. There's an unsprung weight saving, isn't there, with carbon ceramic brakes? Quite a Huge. quite a, quite a yeah. big one, in fact. Yeah, and, many kilos per corner. Yeah, and a chassis, a ride and handling engineer will tell you that that weight saving at each corner, that unsprung weight saving, is like gold dust. Um, yeah, they they'd kill to have it because of the advantages it confers, particularly in terms of ride. Um, and there are other sort of minor differences. You get less uh break dust from ceramics um if you if you leave them for a long time outside in winter and wet weather they don't you know you, you don't come they, they, they haven't welded themselves to their brake pads so there we go i mean you've you've already said haven't you that you basically don't think they're worth it even if you're going to do well, the well i wouldn't say that i think it all i mean it depends on it, to, to me it depends on two crucial things one is how good are the standard iron brakes now yeah okay um you know historically speaking um i've not been knocked out by jaguar brakes on tracks they tend they have tended to disappear quite quickly so you know if you were going to be doing lots of track days in your jaguar um which you probably wouldn't be, but maybe you were, then, you know, it's worth looking at. You know, that said, I did um, a day at Anglesey with a 992 last year, which had iron brakes, and they didn't go away once. You know, they, they were just, you know, and, and there are some big brakes, um, you know, big braking moments you, you, you need at Anglesey. And the brakes on that 992 were you know, as good on the last lap as they had been on the first. Um, and I can remember sitting and thinking to myself, well, why would you go to the extra um, cost of, you know, fitting the carbon ceramics when these brakes feel so good? And actually, even, you know, on a dry track, being subjected to some fairly extreme treatment by a bunch of lunatics, um, you know, we, we, still couldn't, we still couldn't fault them. The other thing I would say is that even within with the world of ceramic brakes, there are 
you know there are carbon ceramic brakes and there are carbon ceramic brakes and you know and and you know just because you've got them you're not immune it doesn't mean that they will never ever fade um you know if you treat a car hard enough um you know the brakes i mean i was driving a manti racing gt3 rs um quite recently um at silverstone deliberately driving it as hard and as fast as i possibly could um and and the brakes got a bit stressy um despite the fact that they were you know porsche um standard carbon ceramics so um you know the different uses different tracks different you know all sorts of things so what i would say is do your research um and you know, don't spend the money unless you absolutely have to. But um, if you're basically going to be doing a lot of track days, then I guess for most cars, they are worth it. Um, the rest of the time, you know, I, I, I'd seriously consider staying with, a, with whatever standard. Yeah, and also with the standard, uh, with standard iron brakes, you can, of course, improve them if you're doing track work with uprated pads, with better brake fluid. Um, and, and that stuff can really make a huge difference. Yes, indeed. Uh, back to carbon ceramics. The brake pedal feel cold weather performance that's all improved hugely massively massively yeah 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 i mean i certainly i certainly wouldn't rule out um carbon ceramics because of that anymore uh no. you know, I've, got, I've got into cars with carbon ceramic brakes when it's been minus plenty and they just they just work from the get-go um they're, they're very very clever like that what do we reckon then to air suspension lots of quite high-end cars <laughs> have have an air suspension option yeah. Um, actually, the Audi RS6 comes on air as standard, and you can optionally upgrade to coil springs. Where do you stand on them? I mean, do you think if it's a, a luxury car, they're often worth having or not? Or completely, completely. I, it's it's so car dependent. Um, you know, I don't think you can make a limo ride like a limo unless it's on air. Or I certainly haven't driven one that. I mean, they all are these days. Um, you know even if you just do things like i don't know if they still do it but like you know an e-class mercedes if you buy the saloon uh as standard it comes with um steel springs at both ends but if you get the wagon um you get air at the back because they want the self-leveling for for load control um and they just ride better um but no i mean a car like a an e-class or an s-class on full air all round, uh it makes such a difference it really does. Um, if, if that's what you want from your car, I mean, there's all sorts of disadvantages to air suspension. Obviously, the cost and they you know, they are very heavy um, and they don't work well at all on on racetracks. So, you know, for that kind of car, you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't consider them. That's why I guess with something like the RS6, Audi allows you to upgrade to what for them will almost certainly be a cheaper system. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I. I, I, I I guess it's like carbon brakes, isn't it? In the right environment, they're better than anything else. Um, but if that's not important to you or that's not going to be the way you use your car, I wouldn't bother. I think it's good that we're discussing this stuff because quite often, you know, if you've if you've not read up much about carbon ceramic brakes or air suspension and you're specking a car and the dealer's telling you that, yeah, air suspension, it will, it will, it will make it much more comfortable. Car, yeah, you need carbon brakes because they're, they're much more fade resistant or whatever. Um, how do, how do you know? How do you know if you're just being sold or if it's if it's really worthwhile? Um, yeah, I mean you're you're right about air suspension. It's as just like with carbon brakes, it's sort of car dependent, isn't it? And also usage dependent. Um, do you do you think though that with air springs, we know that they typically improve ride quality? 
Um, but is there a school of thought that says over certain imperfections in the road, yes, like absolutely. an expansion joint, they sort of slap, don't they? Yeah, they and do, they... and particularly around town. Um, mm. You know, air suspension works better the faster you go, uh, which is why they're great. They're such great cars with air are such great long distance cars because if you're sitting on motorways, um, they're really very good at that sort of thing. But if you're just you know, on slightly nedgy roads, you know, in and out of town, that sort of thing, doing 20, 30 miles an hour, they they actually can struggle. And and if I was, you know, a proper engineer, I'd be able to tell you why they do. But they just do. I suspect it's, you know, it's because they are big units and they, um, yeah, they probably need quite a lot of input for them to work properly. And if you're not travelling fast, if you're not actually putting a lot of load through the suspension, um, you're probably not within their operating window. Now, um, I know they've got a lot better um, in recent years and people now have these, you know, three chamber air springs and, and, and the issues are certainly nothing like what they used to be. But yeah, again, you know, th- these things, you know, it's like it's like LSDs. There's no such, you know, there's very rarely anything you can point to and go, yeah, get one of that because there are no downsides. You know, a whatever you put on a car, it's going to cost money if it's optional. Um, it's almost certainly, well, I suppose, you know, carbon brakes won't, but most things add weight too. Uh, and there will be other downsides too. So it's it's very, very rarely a case of, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, just get that. It's much more a case of, well, you know, what does it cost? Um, how are you going to use the car? What are the disadvantages as well? And you've got to look at this thing. Um, you know, from 360 degrees, because otherwise, you know, what will happen, because this is what obviously dealers want you to do, um, is you end up spending an awful lot of money, very little of which you'll get back at resale time, um, putting stuff on your cars, which at best won't improve it in the way that you use it, and, and, and at other times can genuinely make them worse. And much more expensive. Um, now, talking of which, would you're at, where's your closest OPC? Probably Bristol, isn't it? Official Porsche Centre. You're at, you're at Porsche Bristol. You are specking a 992 Carrera S. Oh, um, oh no, no. You're having a Carrera... Oh, hang on, which one's going to have the manual? The, the Carrera S is going to be offered with a yes. manual, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so you're having an S and you're having a manual. Um, yes, please. And uh, are you having rear wheel steering? Yes, I am. Interesting. Yes, I am. Right, you're going to have to make a case for it now because I'm okay. not... Okay, so uh, okay, so I paused then. <laughs> okay, because I mean, if you were talking about a a sort of uh, a, a, a luxury car um, or a big SUV or something, anything with a long wheelbase, yeah, then to me, rear wheel steering um, is a no-brainer because the additional mass is neither here nor there, and something which already weighs two tons, uh, and its ability to shorten the wheelbase effectively when you're parking the thing or maneuvering around town and then also effectively extend it at high speeds when you're on motorways and that sort of thing i think it's a complete no-brainer um in, in something like a 992 um i actually had it on a 991 uh, that i ran for a bit and i just felt it made the car feel a bit sharper um, I'm not saying that in any way it's an absolutely essential. You have to have rear wheel steering. You know, that's why I paused when I really had to think about it. On balance, I would because I think it just makes the car a bit more incisive on um, on a decent road. But um, to me, not having it would be no kind of deal breaker at all. Um, but you clearly mm. wouldn't. Well, I just prefer... I think 911s are at their best simpler 
particularly Carreras, you know, I, I just, I like them simple. I like nothing on them, really. I don't yeah. want, I don't want any active anti-roll bars or any of that stuff. I just want it as, as simple as I can get it. Um, and yeah, that means not having rear steering. Let's, I want to get stuck into this a little bit because many of us, um, people who write and talk about cars are, are guilty of this quite often, I think. We talk about rear wheel steering and we all know that there's a crossover point where the rear wheels rather than turning in the opposite direction to the fronts, turn in the same direction as the fronts. And that's usually, what, 30-something miles an hour, isn't it? Um, and the idea being that you, you make the car effectively, well, you make it more agile at very low speeds by making it its wheelbase effectively shorter. And then at higher speeds, over 30 miles an hour, whatever the crossover point is, you make it more stable um, with an effectively longer wheelbase. Which is fine, that makes sense. But then that means that when you're driving at 60 miles an hour along a good B road, the rear wheels are turning in the same direction as the fronts and your car is therefore less agile than it might otherwise have been. And why is that an advantage? Oh, that's a question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> why is that an advantage? Well, I, well, I mean, it depends, doesn't it? Um, you know, for people like you or me, then you probably see that as a disadvantage. But I suspect for your average 992 um, user, the idea of a 911 being more rather than less stable is probably quite appealing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that what is right for some people isn't necessarily right for others. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I don't know particularly the speeds at which um, the Porsche system cuts in and out. And, you know, I, I, I would back them sufficiently to think that they've thought of these sorts of things. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have just preferred it um, with, and it's, you know, it's a very, very subjective judgment. Um, but, you know, I, I completely, you know, understand and respect, respect your point of view. Um, it's, uh, so the way, I believe it was a Porsche engineer who explained it to me this way. Um, the point about making a car more stable at higher speeds is that you can therefore give it a more direct steering ratio. Um, you know, if, you, if you've got a very direct steering ratio with a less stable rear end, the car's going to be undrivable. Yeah. But if you make that rear end more stable by turning the wheels in the same direction as the fronts, you can then offset that by giving it a much more direct steering ratio and you therefore have what feels like a more agile car. So it's it's a weird sort of counterintuitive thing, but you know, these things are never quite as simple as, as advertised, are they? No, they're not. And I fundamentally don't like the idea. I don't like quick racks on cars. Um, and I never have. And actually, I've always admired companies like Porsche and McLaren, um, who've always resisted, uh, uh, and Lotus as well, the urge to put really quick racks on cars. Because if you put, and what I mean by a quick rack is that, you know, there is, you know, a large amount of deflection for any given input into the steering, uh, which can make a car feel superficially st- uh, sporty. I mean, Ferraris are really guilty of this. So they get, they're they getting better now, but about 10 years ago, um, you know, they'd be, they would just feel super aggressive. Um, and I'd find they'd knock my confidence and, you know, you just wouldn't feel as comfortable driving the car. So, you know, I'd just rather, you know, I don't mind cars with, you know, medium to slow racks. I don't need cars to feel um, super twitchy off centre. I just want them to feel linear. Um, so, yeah, that's mm. what I sort of feel about it. Right, let's cover off one more area, one more topic. Um, active anti-roll bars. We've 
spoken about these before in the context of a 911, haven't we? And I think we've both said that we don't, we wouldn't specify Porsche dynamic chassis control active anti roll bars. Yeah, because they they work. They're there to take body roll out of the car in corners, but you don't want that because it's body roll that allows you to feel the car loading up, feel the grip down the side of the car. Um, But they, they have their use, don't they? Particularly in luxury cars. They do, yeah. I mean, certainly on the Porsche, um, I think I probably said on this podcast once, that 991 I've just referred to had active roll bars on it. Um, and I think I probably pressed the button twice in my life. I didn't even prefer it with the uh, active roll bars um, working on a track, let alone on the, on, on the road. All they seem to do is just completely trash the ride. Um, and, and, and on the track, as I said, I just preferred... It probably was slightly slower, but who cares? I just preferred the more natural feel... Um, of the roll bars being able to do you know what they would normally do um, with luxury cars yeah um, they, they do make um, a bit of a difference I guess but I, I don't think I've ever driven one where I've suddenly th- thought that these were you know game-changing things I'm just I'm you know, to, to be honest with you I'm just I'm just not I mean I know that engineers love them because you know, they can make a car corner completely level and that sort of thing. But yeah, I'm not. I mean, I think where they are really good um, is when you've got these 48 volt systems on things like I can remember driving a Bentley Bentayga. Um, and not that anybody's ever going to go off reading one of these things, but um, yeah, that has the ability to um, alter its roll bars from basically effectively um, no given them at all so like 100% locked to effectively um, uncoupled so the effectively the car has no rear bolts on it at all so you know where you want a track you'd have no roll whatsoever where you're going off road you know the wheels would be allowed to flop around to their heart's content and that's and that's a clever and useful thing um, in a car like that if you're going to use it for those purposes but I can't imagine anyone using their Bentayga either off road or on a track let alone both Mm. <laughs> yeah it's, it, exactly it's being in a luxury car in particular it's being able to decouple the roll bar isn't it as you're traveling just along a straight road and allowing the wheels on on either side of each axle to rise up and down and therefore settle the ride quality um okay well let's leave it there for all the technical stuff mostly because i suspect you and i have exhausted every ounce of our knowledge we have on the subject matter <laughs> we haven't done suspension yet not that I said. Maybe we'll come back to that another time. Uh, I, 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 could, I could do you 10 minutes on McPherson Strut, but I'm not going to. All right. No, well, we... no, 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 let's not. Let's not. Let's do, let's, let's do that another time. I want to talk about Lewis. Well, okay. Well, yeah, we will come back to suspension arrangements another time because I want to talk about the Alpine A110 again. But yeah, let, let's talk about Lewis. So we're, we're recording this the day after Lewis Hamilton won his 92nd Formula One Grand Prix, um, therefore breaking the record that he equaled uh, last week wasn't it or week before um, it, it, this has only happened a handful of times in the history of the sport hasn't it so it's a big big moment it is it is, it is a big big moment um, and yeah it, it's it's an extraordinary um, achievement uh, and I think what is amazing about it is you know he's clearly got so many more in him I mean he could go way into three figures i mean if he retired his bat at 120 wins that wouldn't surprise me at all um and okay everybody said after michael got 91 that nobody could ever imagine anyone touching that and lewis has obviously done that but um 
you know, I, I don't know of active Formula One drivers who's second. It would presumably be Sebastian or someone like that. But, you know, he's clearly not going to do it. So, you know, you're, you're going to be looking at someone starting from scratch. And I'm not sure that I will live long enough to see anyone beat um, Lewis's record. It, it, it is the most extraordinary achievement. And I know that there are people out there who will knock Lewis and always say, oh, well, he's always had the best car. And he has. But, you know, he's one of the reasons that that car is as good as it is. Um, and particularly Michael was like that. You know, that Ferrari, you know, he went to Ferrari in 1996 and the car was an absolute mutt. And he worked harder, I think, than, you know, any driver has any worked, has, has, has ever worked, um, to bring that team along with him. He built the team around him and created a series of simply, or helped create a, a series of simply extraordinary racing cars. And I think that uh, the talismanic effect of having Lewis in your team, someone who will drive that hard and race that hard and is as intelligent as he is. You know, I think, you know, he makes a lot of his own success when he's outside the cockpit. So, you know, all the credit in the world to him. I think it is it is an amazing performance. Um, and, I, and I guess, you know, I did something on Drive Nation yesterday um, pointed to, to some research in The Economist which tried to address the age-old issue of who's the best ever um, and, and I've always thought it's a it's a slightly pointless argument although interesting um, and I was very interested by the way they tried to use um, you know computer modeling to work it out once and for all but to me you just can't compare drivers from one era to another and I mean that you couldn't even compare Lewis to someone like Senna, let alone, you know, Fangio or, or, or Jim Clark. I think all you can say is that one driver is the best of his era. And to me, um, Lewis is head, shoulders, you know, knees and toes above anybody else out there. Yeah, that's true. He's also, by the end of the season, he is going to win a, win a seventh world title. And that does make him statistically the greatest. Statistically, and that's a very important uh, distinction to make. Um, well, he, he he will equal Michael's number of world titles, but yeah, but then also have more race wins. Absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I I was having a Twitter conversation a while ago about this stuff, and it was Matt Bishop, um, who is he's he was editor of the F1 Mag a while ago, wasn't he? And yeah. um, McLaren's comms guy. Yes. Um, and he said very astutely, very wisely, you know, trying to draw these statistical comparisons across the generations is pointless. And he I can't remember his exact phrase, but he said. The only way we can hope to get anywhere near it is through ongoing, flawed, lyrical debate. And that's great, isn't it? We, <laughs> you know, we, 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 can't, we, can't, um, we can't prove it with numbers. We can't, no, you can't. You to come up with some formula. We just have to talk about it and discuss it and yeah, debate it. And, and to me, the ultimate example of that is that, you know, you could get, you know, all the computers of the world to do all the number crunching in the world and none of them would ever put Sterling in the top 10 of anything. Oh, um, there we go. Whereas, yeah, yeah. whereas I think that, I think that, you know, okay, I, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think most people coming up with their list of the top 10 drivers of, of all time would, would, would have Sterling on it. And I think that probably most of them would have him quite a long way up there. But statistically, he's nowhere. Um, so... It's a kind of it's an interesting conversation to have, and I love having the debate. But ultimately, you can never you can never just use raw data to say that one person was better than another, other than you know where there are direct comparisons to be made. And in Lewis's case, you can compare directly to the other people who are out there doing it at the same time as him. And among that lot, yeah, he's in a different he's in a different league. Right. I just want to say one thing, um, and you 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 referenced it earlier. Um, this this criticism that Hamilton gets for 
having had the best car for the last what six years or whatever. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. People say he only won the world championship that many times because he had the best car, and I hate that. It, it really frustrates me. The thing is, he had the best car and he won. Okay, you you can only level that criticism at the person who had the best car and didn't win. You know, that's <laughs> they have they have a case yes. to answer. It's Bottas. Yep. Bottas has got the best car and he doesn't win. So you can you can you can level that criticism at him. You can't level it at the guy who also did win. Yeah, and also he's not always had the best car. You know, the Ferrari, you know, was a couple of seasons back was a better car. Um, and you know, and and level that criticism at Vettel for somehow uh, allowing Mercedes to um, to do a you know to you know because it's not just the car, is it? Uh, it's 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 teamwork and it's everything else, and they did a better job. So absolutely um you know cream always rises to the top and and you know, and they find a way um and yeah i just think lewis has done a spectacular job and i you know and, and i hope i know it's a bit boring for people because you know mercedes always wins and lewis almost always wins when mercedes wins um and nobody would like more competitive racing in formula one more than than i would but you know you can't blame the drivers and you can't blame the cars for you know, blame the rule makers. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's what that team um, has uh, uh, achieved over the years, uh, particularly with that driver, is, is, is awe-inspiring. I can't remember exactly what Max Verstappen said yesterday, but it's a really interesting quote. And it's, it basically revealed that one of Lewis's main motivations for racking up these race wins, racking up the titles, is that he wants to raise the bar as high as he can before retiring to make it specifically to make it as hard as possible for Max to beat him because he, <laughs> he it's really interesting isn't it because he looks at Max who is is he 12 now or is he 13 years old and he he just sees that this kid has got you know maybe 15 more seasons ahead of him whatever it is um, and he reckons that w- with the talent he's got he's the one who is going to potentially displace Hamilton's records so it's fascinating that Lewis views it yeah. that way I think it's really unlikely though I think it's you know I, I just you know you know Max has been around for quite a long time and he is absolutely a a gifted driver but you know are, are the stars going to align um you know in the way they did for Lewis you know Lewis you know was at McLaren McLaren was super successful um, and then went to Mercedes um, and had, you know, a not dissimilar experience then, which has gone on for even longer. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess for every season that Lewis continues to succeed, A, the number gets higher, but also Max gets older. And it just, you know, it's a double whammy for him, isn't it? It just makes it even more difficult. Um, but... I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think Max would be. I think Max would be doing extremely well to beat Lewis. As I, you know, maybe he will. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, my jury is very much still out on that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to witness someone breaking all these records. But it doesn't make for great entertainment, does it? So, so frankly, I hope that nobody beats the records because I just want Formula One to be more competitive from here on in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sadly, we've got next year with, you know, a rules freeze. Um, so it will be that I can't think of any reason why it won't be the same again. But and we've discussed discussed this in another podcast. But hopefully when things do genuinely change in 2022, it will be, you know, a more interesting show than it is at the moment. Yeah, I hope so. 
Okay, all right, let's wrap this one up. Um, and I'll rattle off my calls to action. Um, so please remember to uh, review the podcast, leave a rating, subscribe to the podcast wherever you download them. Um, and also please check out patreon.com forward slash drive nation where you can bung us a few quid a month um, and you'll get some exclusive written stuff uh, from the two of us in return um, and thank you to everybody who has done so far yeah absolutely uh, thank you one and all um, we'll be back again this time next week the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel 